as is our normal fare. We try to go through a book of the Bible verse by verse. We find ourselves in Acts 14. When I was a teenager, our youth group would go on mission trips, and we went to the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina, and we would run vacation Bible schools in different uh, rural churches there in North Carolina. Part of the training involved these weekly meetings at our home church in Ohio. We'd meet every Sunday afternoon, and I can hardly tell you anything about those meetings. I don't remember the lessons, except for one where there was a missionary couple that came, and there was a Q&A with the missionary couple, and they were asked, what was the greatest challenge being on the mission field? And the answer was not the the strain on the family, the answer was not, you know, the, uh, the, the challenge of being in a, in a foreign culture. The answer to the greatest challenge of being on the mission field was getting along with other missionaries. Getting along with other missionaries. And I remember at first being a little taken aback by that answer But in talking to missionaries the past 45 years, it sadly seems to be a reoccurring theme. I think if we were able to interview Paul and Barnabas at the end of their uh, journeys, I would suspect that they would conclude that the greatest opposition to their ministry was from religious leaders. The fact is, if we expect to make any progress in any ministry endeavor, it would be grossly naive for us to expect that things will always go smoothly, that there will never be opposition from religious circles. In fact, I would say this, that how we handle opposition will either make or break us in ministry. I remember Janet and I listening to a message from Chuck Swindoll years ago when we first started. And he made made a similar statement. And we kind of covenanted between us that we'd like to not run anybody down in our home, that if we have a problem with somebody, we want to try to look at them in in a good light and not allow our home to be a breeding ground for bitterness. Now, That has been a challenge because there have been some very real hurtful situations and conflicts, but I think by and large, we've been able to to maintain that. It's really easy for us to replay our sad stories, is it not? I mean, any of us can do that. Uh, it, It comes easy to play the part of the victim if you've been involved in any kind of ministry. And I'm not just talking about pastors, but anytime you've involved yourselves in a church. How many of you have ever been hurt in a church? Raise your hand. Yeah, the rest of you are lying and don't have your hands up, all right? (laughs) No, what what does help is, is, again, not retelling the story and playing the role of the victim, but I think what helps is seeing how great God is and how he can use us in spite of of these hurtful situations. In fact, we could say it this way, that God often uses opposition to create new opportunities for ministry, right? He does. Uh, This chapter that we look at in chapter 14 is kind of the, the closing to the first 
missionary journey of, of Paul and Barnabas. And what becomes evident is that God was moving significantly through their ministry, even in the face of opposition. Let's all stand as we look at Acts 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Uh, Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. After being in Antioch of Pisidia and being driven out of the city, Paul and Barnabas travel about 78 miles um, east and a little south to Iconium. Now, through Iconium ran highways to Syria and Ephesus, which made it a, a prime trading destination. And as was his custom, Paul would stop in the synagogues of the cities that he would visit, and he would always deliver the gospel there first. He had not given up on the Jews, even though his words in Acts 13, 46 were about turning to the Gentiles, that was considering a specific tactic in Antioch, but it didn't cover his whole ministry. He still went to the synagogues to minister. As a result, our text tells us that once again, there was a tremendous reception and there was significant opposition. Both Jews and Greeks believed, and both Jews and Greeks opposed them. There were allies, and there were enemies. Verse 1 says, they spoke in such a way that a great many believed. Now, there's never a guarantee that if we speak a certain way, that there's going to be the kind of results that Paul and Barnabas witnessed here. It could. I've seen that kind of a thing happen. I can remember speaking to a prison, and there were, this was like a youth prison, and I can't even remember the state or the city I was in, but gave an invitation, and there was about 35 of the prisoners there, and about 30 received Christ. And at one time, and it was like an onslaught. It was unbelievable. And saw the same speaking at a at a, a VBS at a Hungarian Reformed church who didn't know what they were getting by getting three Bible school students from Moody. And there was about 50 kids there. And at the invitation, every one of the kids came to receive Christ. It was unbelievable. The pastor that was sitting in the back 
I guess you'd call him that, was rocking, was so angry that after about 10 minutes, he kicked us out. He was so upset that we gave the gospel. And so you see the opposition sometimes, and you see a tremendous move of the Spirit, but that was unique. We try to go into every situation humbly. We try to go into every situation giving the truth, and sometimes you have, you know, results that are dramatic, and sometimes you can hear crickets. But either way, Paul had a a certain manner where he, he positioned his heart that didn't did not inhibit the spirit. He spoke in such a way. Both he and Barnabas were were broken and humble about their abilities and confident in the ability of God to use them. They didn't come with an agenda, right? I mean, they, they didn't come thinking that, you know, their whole shtick was just to get more money. They didn't worry about their reputation or their own lives. They spoke freely and boldly. There was no other agenda other than being a vessel for God to use. Now, we have to remember that the power of the Apostle Paul did not lie in his good looks or in his charisma or in his speaking ability. It was quite the opposite. Listen to what he would say about himself. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I don't think this is faux humility. I think he was saying, I'm not a very good speaker, and others recognize it. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. And again, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge indeed in every way. We've made this plain to you in all things. There's a second century book known as the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Thecla was a first century martyr. The book contains one of the only physical descriptions that we have of the Apostle Paul. Now, it's not scripture, but It's a book that was written, so we take it to be close to the truth, all right? Uh, This is what is recorded about the Apostle Paul. He was short, bald, bow-legged, with heavy eyebrows and protruding eyes. It reminds us that the impact of the Apostle Paul was not because of his natural ability. It was because he was filled with with the Holy Spirit of God, and God chose to use him. So there would be no doubt that this was a doing of God and not because Paul was, you know, so good-looking and a great orator, none of that. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, again, when Luke, who wrote Acts, refers to the Jews, it doesn't mean all the Jews, because we know that some of the Jews believe. Most commentators think that when he mentions the Jews like this in a negative connotation, he's referring to the Jewish leaders. They stirred up the Gentiles, meaning they were provoked. What they told them elicited an emotional response against Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the believers. It says the Jews poisoned their minds. 
poison their minds, literally causing their minds to think evil of Paul and Barnabas and the church there in Iconium. What they said, we could probably, was not true. And even if it was close to the truth, it was twisted. And it was effective. We read in Proverbs, bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. And I think what's worth noting is that the Jews typically did not like the uh, Gentiles. But here, they act like allies to protest the gospel and the Christians. I mean, some enemies divide and conquer. Here, they unify and conquer. The worst opposition is usually from religious people. In this case, it's a religious mob that set out to stone them. I mean, what can you do when religious people come against you and mistreat you and seek harm, at the least to your reputation? What can you do when you have family members or those close to you, friends, you thought, who come against you? What do you do? Well, from experience, I can tell you, wallowing in your hurt doesn't help. But you can't deny the hurt. I usually find it's not helpful to retell others just to gain allies. That's not helpful either, though that temptation is great. We have a a pretty terrific example in the life of Joseph of the Old Testament, who I think could understand what it was like to be mistreated. He was, for those of you that are not familiar with the story, he was uh, rejected by his brothers. In fact, Genesis tells us that his brothers hated him. They hated him. Not only did they hate him, they threw him in a hole, initially wanting to leave him there to just die, but then, you know, one of them felt guilty, so then they did the next best thing. They just sold him as a slave, all right? Some traders came through that were passing by, so they, they sold Joseph. Now, if anybody had good reason to complain about the wrong done to him, it'd be Joseph. His own blood brothers betrayed him. After ending up in Egypt and gaining the trust of Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, he's put in charge of running the affairs of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and he rebuffs her efforts. And guess what? He's thrown in prison because she accuses him unjustly of rape. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife. And while in prison, he meets a cupbearer of Pharaoh. Cupbearer would be like one of the main servants to Pharaoh. And he was in prison at the same time. He had a dream. And he wants Joseph to interpret his dream because Joseph had a gift for that. And Joseph says, well, listen, if I interpret this, could you, when you get out of here, could you talk to whoever you can to get me out? because I've been unjustly accused. The guy goes, sure, sure, I'll be happy to do that. He interprets the dream. He gets out of prison. He doesn't say a word. Doesn't say a word. Completely forgets about him. So Joseph is betrayed. 
he's unjustly accused, he is forgotten. I mean, he could write a book on all the offenses done to him. What does he do? We're not given every day of his life, but we are given some themes. And in a telling passage after these events, and during the time that Joseph is being reunited in a very dramatic story with his brothers, we read Joseph saying the following to his brothers. Listen to this. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Now, know this, that he was gathering a bunch of grain during a time in which, you know, there was a great famine and he had years of grain stored up and he engineered this. I mean, he was, had a, a, he was a master leader and an organizer. So that's kind of in the background here. But the, listen to this, verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Notice, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Yes, you, my brothers, are responsible for throwing me in a hole and selling me, but ultimately, God is sovereign. God allowed it. God is using it. God has been in control all along. We might take some application from this and say this, that when I constantly blame others for the hurt that they cause, I fail to see God's sovereignty. When I hate, instead of loving my enemies, I basically push the pause button on my growth. When I complain constantly about others and how they've hurt me, I refuse to see the hand of God at work. God orchestrated the life of Joseph and used all of this, the betrayal, right? The the unjust charge, the fact that he was forgotten, he used it to position him for leadership and influence and produced much fruit through the life of Joseph. Joseph would later say to his brothers this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's always a but God when we recognize the sovereignty. Yes, this happened, but God, but God. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We have a choice, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters. We're not locked within the hurt. We're not locked to just be bitter. We have a choice when we are hurt to replay the offense or remind ourselves of the goodness and the sovereignty of God. That doesn't mean deny the offense. It just means somebody else is in control. God allowed this. One keeps us stuck. The other frees us to learn and grow and minister to others. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. I mean, if there ever was a 
verse you'd say was rather innocuous, you know, not that important. It'd be like this one, but we'd be mistaken. This thing just kind of comes up, sneaks up on us, and packs a punch. In the midst of conflict, in the midst of the lies being said about them, Paul and Barnabas stayed at Iconium for a long time. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I would, you know, I'm looking on monster.com for a job. I'm not going to find the first line. Expect to be persecuted. No thanks, okay? Don't think I'll go there. That will shorten the stay if I end up there. They didn't just stay and hide out. They stayed and continued to speak boldly about God's grace. We're told that God used the signs and wonders as a way to authenticate their message. I mean, those who had ears to hear responded and continued to to receive the gospel. The signs and wonders and witness, I think, would have been severely cut short if Paul and Barnabas would have left at the first sign of trouble. In other words, you leave now, think of all the fruit that you miss out on. I think of the same thing in 38 years of marriage. We could have left in the early years. It was very difficult. But then you think of all the fruit that came later that we would have completely missed out on. We can't always know why in some cases God moved for Paul and others to leave a town and why he wanted them to sometimes stay. When they did leave, we know this. It wasn't because they were scared, because they were bold wherever they were. I mean, bold perseverance in the face of hostility, I think, is just as much a sign of God working as healing somebody. Both are miraculous. The fact that they would stay in the midst of the persecution and continue to be bold, man. That's, that's supernatural. There's something to be said about longevity of relationships and quality of ministry. My mother got a call yesterday from a friend of hers that she has known one year shy of 80, 79 years. And they've been best friends since they were children. Her name is Dot. Dot called my mom yesterday called me, and I had to walk over to my mom's house and give her the phone. Uh, The more life that they have traveled, the closer that they have grown together. One of the things that they laughed about, because they were speaking on, you know, my phone was on speaker, they were laughing about how they know all of the secrets for one another, they know each other's failures, and they still love one another. There's something to be said about knowing the worst in somebody and still maintaining long-lasting relationships. That's true for a family. That's true for a church. Whenever there's conflict, we're committed to the relationships. See, there are some people that cannot maintain long-lasting relationships, whether it's church or family because they will only get close or be friendly to those who agree with them. First sign of strife, I'm out of here. 
Let's face it, the length of our relationships are often limited by our fears, our presumption, and even our arrogance. There's some fruit, there's some fruit that will only come by longevity of relationship. And I think Paul and Barnabas were able to reap that as they were committed to stay. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Apostles here doesn't mean the original 12, but just those sent out by a church. And in this case, they were sent out by a church in another Antioch town. Iconium was really a microcosm of ministry, is it not? Is that you'll have people that will be enemies and people that will be allies. And when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. Here we see that Paul and Barnabas were finally released from Iconium. And they, they realized that there was this reaction against them. It was really kind of a, a unionized grouping between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. I mean, when people unite out of a, a common hatred, that's an evil unity. And that's what was taking place. Just like the Pharisees and Sadducees came together to come against Christ, here you have Jew and Gentile coming together against Paul and Barnabas in the church. If the blood of the martyrs has been used as the seed of the church, then the banishment of missionaries helps to scatter the seed. The opposition was certainly not limited to slander. They wanted to kill them. So it was not cowardice, though, that caused them to leave. They were undaunted, even as they left this city. Two cities before this, they were doing the same thing, still bold. And we see that boldness continue when they left Iconium. And verse 7 says, and they continued to preach the gospel. Opposition only clarified their mission. They were rejected disciples who loved a rejected Savior, and that represented a kind of New Testament standard for ministry. You want to be in ministry? Welcome rejection. And they stand really as a, as a refreshing contrast to many ministry models today. Try to be popular, influential, wealthy. When the situation became dangerous, as it did in Iconium, they were like well-conditioned athletes, in this case, well-conditioned saints in the spirit. When they were persecuted, they just received a second wind to go on to the next city, strengthened by the spirit of God. We could look at it this way, all right? If, if these guys, after, you know, here he was threatened to be stoned, and, and if opposition and injustice are not good enough reasons for us to quit in our ministry for the Lord, is there ever a good enough reason? Think about it. In me contributing to the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean a, a particular job, you know, uh, with a particular situation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just saying, I'm not going to ever do this again. That's what I'm talking about by quitting. I'm not going to ever be involved in using my gifts for the kingdom of God because of this past hurt. And the fact is, God may move us. Uh, God may give us a, a brief respite. All that is true. 
but are we ever really retired from using our time, treasure, and talent for the kingdom of God? I mean, listen, we could all sit here and we could share our sad stories and our offenses, but instead, let us choose to be faithful. Let us choose to endure because with endurance, there are unique rewards that don't come otherwise. For instance, endurance brings godly character and allows maturity to come to completion. Paul would write in Romans, and endurance produces what? Character. So there's some character that won't be produced unless we endure. James 1.4 says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How? By being steadfast. I mean, when the pressure outside is squeezing you, God is forming you on the inside. We have to let that work take place. Another is endurance proves the faithfulness of God and effectiveness of God's word. We have the privilege of hearing Paul address these events in Acts 14 in another passage. We get his perspective. Listen to this. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's a way of saying that, that I must decrease and he must increase. Opposition reminds us that we are not our own. That the testimony of, of God's glory and faithfulness far exceeds my need for comfort. Lastly, endurance influences others towards faithfulness. Paul would also write, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Does our life have the testimony of endurance? Of good, not just that we live long, but we live long faithfully. Many of you know the recent passing of Craig Johnson and Craig Fields. Craig Johnson used to be our head usher, dear friend. One of the things that sticks out to me and inspires me in the loss of Craig was his steadfastness to look to God in his sickness, not to ever give up hope. It was truly inspiring that he never cursed God, never blamed God, but instead praised God till the end. And Lisa said that in one of the moments before he died, he was just raising his hands to the Lord when his body was racked with cancer. Just praising God. I love that picture. Craig Fields was a local pastor and a dear friend who died just several weeks ago and would often talk about ministry. Craig never gave up. 
He was intent on preaching, and he went through some tough times. Intent on preaching the gospel and working out difficulties with others. He loved the word of God and, and related it to his life whenever possible. And when I was speaking at his funeral, I shared a story of when it's been over 20 years ago, and I was at a spot where just opposition was intense, and I just said, that's it. I've had it. Got another opportunity over here. I think I'm going to go do that. And I remember him sitting across from me as we were having lunch. He goes, Kevin, if God is moving you to move, that's great. I'm all behind you. But don't go because it's too hard. And then I told him to shut up. I didn't like to hear that. And I remember going home and really taking a look at that and saying, man. And it came from a guy who was living it. He went through tough times himself. Their memory inspires and encourages. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians. Are you influencing others towards faithfulness? Or do you have a track record of leaving others in your wake? It just didn't give you what you wanted. Just too hard. Now, I get that sometimes we, 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 we try to reconcile, and sometimes people just don't want to, right? So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where we're the ones responsible. We've caused the hurt. We're not making it right. Let our testimony be one of steadfastness and faithfulness. There's certain fruit that only comes through enduring faithfulness. May we go as long as we can in our relationships, and may we continue in our serving of Christ until we can go no more. Be poured out as a drink offering. We go until our last breath, honoring God, loving well in our relationships.